0: There are thousands of people marching in the streets. In 50 states demanding meaningful change, the people are demanding action. Our fathers,
1: our mothers, our brothers, our cousins, our godchildren are in danger because of the color of their skin. And we must continue to show up for them. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. we say their names as reminders of their humanity it seems a lifetime ago now, but last year the murder of several unarmed black people by police officers in the US sparked a global conversation about race and inequality.
2: And the aid sector was no exception to that. Many aid agencies began discussing diversity and inclusion in their organizations and coming to grips with some pretty unhealthy power dynamics. And I think Black Lives Matter is a, is a wake-up call around building the next generation of institutions that put equality, inclusion, racial justice at their heart, particularly in in the developmental humanitarian sector.
1: But some activists argue that diversity and inclusion is just the tip of the iceberg. This period of reckoning over the past months has prompted a much deeper critique about the very roots of the humanitarian endeavor. I don't see people having these really important conversations about the structure, the architecture of the aid system and how it's been designed on purpose to ensure inequities and to ensure that we don't get out of poverty. And this is part of the neo-colonial imperialistic design. A lot of the international development frameworks that
0: we're working in are built on the backs of white supremacy culture that has inevitably left a lot of Black people and non-Black people of color silenced, marginalized, and
1: severely underfunded
2: Those are hard words to hear for people who have spent their careers in the sector. But at the same time, I don't think they can be dismissed out of hand. In short, there is a fair bit of anger and frustration out there, and that is leading to growing calls to decolonize the aid sector.
0: It's time to take a sledgehammer entirely to the IMF, entirely to the World Bank, entirely to this structure of the UN Security Council that we've been living with for 70 years. It's not good enough.
1: Over the summer of 2020, we saw the passion, the energy, tearing down statues and protests in the street. But a lot of movements falter when it comes time for policy change.
2: So now comes the hard part for both the humanitarian sector and for its critics. How does this dialogue begin to move from slogans to actual change? In Washington, D.C., I'm Jeremy Kneindyke, Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development.
1: And in Geneva, Switzerland, I'm Hiba Ali, Director of The New Humanitarian. We are your co-hosts for Rethinking Humanitarianism, a podcast series exploring the future of aid.
2: Before we dive in on today's topic, we wanted to share thoughts from a listener. In the last episode, we spoke to Fabrizio Hoxtell-Drummond and Hisham Youssef about how UN agencies are governed and whether multilateral reform will ever be possible.
1: In response, a UN staffer in Geneva contacted us with this thought. If you want to do multilateral reform, you've just got to abolish the permanent members of the Security Council, brace yourself for the withdrawal of funding that that will result in as all of the, shall we say, wounded permanent Security Council members hold funding hostage and hope that the rest of the world steps up. Jeremy, what do you make of that?
2: I don't agree. I think that abolishing the permanent membership is a real minefield, both for the reasons that this person cites. But also, I'm not sure it would be a good idea. I mean, ultimately, the Security Council is a place where realpolitik is meant to happen. And if you don't have the most powerful countries in the world as part of that process of realpolitik, then it becomes a sort of academic sideshow even more than it sometimes is today. But also, I, I worry about setting the bar for multilateral reform so high you know, if, if you say the only way anything will ever change is if we eliminate permanent membership on the Security Council, what you're doing, in effect, is kind of creating an excuse for not doing lower-hanging fruit reforms, which frankly could be done and could have an impact whatever the composition of the Security Council. I don't think that changing the Security Council is a an unavoidable prerequisite to doing other forms of change.
1: I think the counter argument to that would be it's all good and well to tinker around the edges, but nothing is really ever going to change until you tackle the fundamental power structures at the heart of it all. And even the UN Secretary General has acknowledged that, you know, if you want the powerful countries of the world sitting on the Security Council, you don't have them today. That no longer represents the powers of today. But I guess more fundamentally, I would say no change happens without a degree of messiness, whether that's the Arab Spring, which you might argue hasn't ended very well. But that's also the case, and in uh, US and and French revolutions where it takes years and and centuries before some of these uh, long-term changes really take hold and there's a price to be paid in the meantime. And I think too often when we talk about change, no one's ever willing to acknowledge that some sacrifices have to be made. So I believe that we're at a time now in which people aren't so concerned about what the price is and they're just ready to take power where they believe they deserve it.
2: So I'm I'm not sure that revolution is really the analogy that applies to how the Security Council would change if, if it were to ever change. Who are the protesters on the barricades looking to overthrow the Security Council? You know, this is not like a political revolution. This is a very different construct. And I think change happens there in different ways. In short, it changes through shifting ethics and shifting norms.
1: So I would just say, I think the countries that are Barging at the barricades are the Indias of the world. Are there? Are the um, soon enough many countries in Africa, and uh, we've already seen a revived push for Security Council reform in in multilateral fora. I'm not sure. I agree that revolution doesn't apply in this case. I don't think people necessarily realize they're leading a revolution when they're doing so. It may well be the only way that this changes, but it's actually part and parcel of what we're going to talk about today. How do you go about? this kind of fundamental change? Is it through revolution? And can it be done through evolution?
2: That whole dynamic of how do you go from theoretical change to the mechanisms of actual change? You know, We've been hearing calls for the last few years now, but particularly loudly since June to decolonize global health, to dismantle colonized aid organizations, to rethink or even defund the IMF and the World Bank. But for all those calls, there's a lot Less clarity on what any of that actually means and how any of that would actually happen. You know, what are the implications of decolonizing? And what are some of the ethical dilemmas that that might entail?
1: And when I sat down a few weeks ago to talk to longtime aid worker Tamam Al-Audet about a new initiative he's launching to decolonize global health, I knew we needed him on the podcast. Tamam is a Syrian doctor and the senior strategic advisor to the access campaign of Doctors Without Borders which tries to ensure access to medicines, uh, not only for MSF, but for people around the world. And MSF as an organization, of course, has a mission to serve people in need of health care, particularly in humanitarian crises. But according to its own president, has, quote, failed people of color, both staff and patients, failed to tackle institutional racism, and is part of white privileged culture, end quote.
2: And I know from my own conversations with aid organizations over the past half year that a lot of them are struggling with exactly that kind of self-reflection. And so from inside that culture, as one of the few people of color in the management of MSF, and frankly, one of the relatively few in the NGO sector generally, because it is not nearly as diverse a leadership culture, as I think it, it needs and aspires to be, Tamam brings a really unique perspective on what leading this kind of change looks like in a major aid institution.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Tamam.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Maybe we can just start from the very beginning, Tamam. Why is global health and aid and humanitarianism colonized, in your view?
0: I think uh, before we start defining terms exactly, it might be useful to draw an image of. A, an imbalanced sphere, let's call it a space that affects the lives and deaths of many people, whether that is the global health one or the humanitarian one. And that sphere has multiple actors and some actors have dominion over others almost entirely and almost all the time, without a qualification except that 50 years ago or 150 years ago, someone started that organization in a Western country. And the continuing complete conviction that this domination and this ability to decide on people's behalf, what happens to them is consistent. Now, whether, whether we take the, the similes between a colonial space and in a space where a dominant external force decides the, life, the lives and deaths of people while claiming a, a a civilizing savior mission to be literal or not is up to debate. But before we, we discuss the similarities and differences, it is important to say that we have that imbalance and that people who are on top of that um, are hesitant to give up their place.
2: And I think that gets to one of the things that I struggle with with the term decolonizing when we're talking about the aid sector is colonialism was, as as you, as you say, it was a, a system of very deep power imbalances. And and clearly we have deep power imbalances within the humanitarian sector as well. But colonialism was also about exploitation and extraction. So some of the critiques and the critiques that we heard in the intro to this episode argue that that's true of the aid sector as well. In your view, can we can we kind of disentangle the means from the ends in terms of how we think about colonialism and the aid sector?
0: Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I hesitate to call the aid sector a colonial power, but I would comfortably call it a part of a colonial construct which is not a necessity, it's not embedded in the nature of wanting to provide humanitarian aid. But it could be seen as the case in many uh, situations now. So the extraction and exploitation is there and the continuation of a colonial legacy of rich countries benefiting of the uh, shoulders of poor countries, both in terms of resources they've extracted in the past, but in the prevention of the use of other resources. And I I think, in a way, if you look at climate change and the reduction of industrial outputs, uh, that is still resisted by some of the industrial countries that have benefited at the expense of countries that haven't. Hence, prolonging their underdevelopment is while, while giving them token aid to uh, feel that they are cared for is one unmistakably exploitative and extractive means. Um, The other part is, um, I would say that the industry itself is not the colonial power, but can be complicit in a colonial uh, situation in the sense of, uh, yes, there are plenty of people who benefit from the humanitarian aid, as aid workers, but more so people who get Mm. salaries, people who get futures, people who get guaranteed, Mm. you know, uh, uh, careers, who uh, who get self-respect, who get uh, to brag about their work. And in that sense, yeah, maybe the humanitarian industry is not the empire, but it certainly uh, sounds Mm. sometimes like the civil service of the empire. They they wouldn't necessarily care to continue the exploitation and they try sometimes to minimize it. But there are definitely plenty of people who are making careers and lives and, and, mm. uh, and reputations and existence on it. And those are mostly white Western
1: people. So I want to ask you, speaking of the white Western people, I mean, Stephanie Kimu, who we also heard from in one of the clips off the top, she gives this definition of white supremacy culture as a specific ideology stating that white people and their ideas and their thoughts and beliefs and actions are superior to those of people of color and black people. And, and she then looks at the aid sector and says, okay, when, when you say that local people don't have the capacity or that they're corrupt or that they can't be trusted and we need to do the work, when you have all white leadership in, in major international NGOs, when you have different pay scales, depending on whether you live in North America or in the global south, those are all examples of white supremacy culture at play in the aid system. I wonder how you see that.
0: So we, we can look at that anecdotally or or statistically. And you know, it's obvious, it was mentioned here, that the presence of people of color or people from the south in uh, the upper rungs in the brass of the humanitarian sector is is meager at best. There aren't many people who come. And and to add to that. People of color in those places, despite their rarity, are usually very well assimilated. It's not like they pick people who represent the communities they come from, and that applies to me as much as it applies to many colleagues who come from the South. We have to have proven once and again our ability to fit seamlessly in a Western cultural context for us to be viable at any uh, significant level in the organizations. I don't think that if I talked and dressed like a person who comes from my paternal village in southern Syria, I would be recruited in an interview. Mm. And Mm. it is fine for someone who's worked in the aid sector for 30 years to still speak English barely and with a thick accent, but you don't see that happening much with the with people from the South, that the levels of discrimination, none of them is a a smoking gun necessarily in itself, and everyone can be justified on case to case basis. Add together into a situation where on the ground, most of the people that do the work are um, brown and black people, and most of the people who uh, decide on their behalf, it's not only that they are white people, it's also they are people who have never been subject to the same risk and distress of emergencies other than externals uh, that they are making decisions on. And and there is a significant difference between if you were bombed as you or whether you were bombed as an expat who has a a safe room and a flight back home.
2: In my day job research at the Center for Global Development, one of the projects that I've been working on is looking at board of director composition across major NGOs. MSF actually is one of the ones we've been looking at, among others. And we tried to get at that question exactly. How many people can we see, can we identify on NGO boards who have lived experience as a survivor of some kind of crisis? Um, lived experience as a person who would be served by this organization, not just a person who would govern this organization. And across the 14 or 15 organizations that we looked at, which were the largest in the sector, you could count on one hand the number of people we were able to identify who had that kind of lived experience.
0: And, and that's not a surprise. And that isn't only in the boards of directors. This is in management teams, in country management teams. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a recent phenomena where you start seeing people... Um, Uh, being managers in their own countries in most humanitarian organizations the argument was they would be biased and unable to detach however once you have emergencies in european countries like in greece or in france when calais was the case no one argued that let's bring a congolese guy to to be the Mm -hmm. head of mission in paris or the head of mission in athens because By default, Hmm. it seems that the Greeks and French and Belgians and others are capable of detaching from their national politics, which isn't a luxury that we have ourselves. So it's not
1: only boards of directors. Hmm. So if if we have touched a bit on what colonization means in this context, what does decolonization mean in this context?
0: It's still hard to tell. No to colonial circumstances were similar historically. And they've ranged greatly from massively exploitative and brutal to less exploitative and brutal, to some that claimed a mandate to protect to others that were obviously um, extractive almost only. And in the same sense, uh, decolonization in the historical context has differed massively. There are countries like Haiti that paid their own slave price for 150 years to France, which France hasn't apologized for yet and caused directly the underdevelopment of Haiti, to countries that fought back with guns, to countries that fought back peacefully. And no two situations are exactly the same. No one sat and said, let's sit. Uh, and design a polite and coherent framework for our decolonization before we talk about it. (laughs) That is an unreasonable request. Mm. And and the act of determining to uh, erase the imbalance of power that people who are trying to do it are calling it decolonization is in itself an act of understanding, an act of analysis, and an act of solidarity. So... We have two issues. One on whether it's appropriate to use it. And I think this is a call that should be uh, reserved for people who are trying to do it before anything else. Of course, critique is open and we can, we can uh, uh, have a debate that is going mm. to be endless, of course. But just like decolonization, and I, I quote a, a researcher I admire, Leoba Hershwood, she said, no one expected all decolonization efforts to be polite and mainstream and so on, and no one can blame them for using the, the means they've used. Um, it sort of feels now that the immediate reaction from the system to any talk about decolonization is be nice, be polite, work within the system to... and and. It's hard to not remember Audre Lorde. You can't use the master's tools to demolish the master's house. There is a merit in using an act and a simile of resistance mm-hmm. that doesn't demand to keep the status quo, that doesn't care to keep the system. That doesn't, however, means to demolish the system, neither immediately nor ultimately.
2: I think that that's a, a really important distinction. I think it gets to the crux of what is challenging you know, about the decolonization term is it? It is it is intentionally provocative in the same way that sort of, you know, the calls to defund the police in the U.S. are intentionally provocative, and they're, you know, for the most part, you know, that that is a slogan that is somewhat overstating the the substance of the policy agenda. So here too, I, I you know, my sense is that m- many of the calls to decolonize are kind of using a provocative term to kind of fire up a long-needed and long ignored conversation or rethink how do you kind of how do you think about that how what's your understanding of what that you know what's the balance there and are we you know like colonialism was an unmitigated bad right colonialism was not something that was you know take the good leave the bad it was it was a it was a system of extraction it was an unmitigated bad. I don't feel that way about the aid system, even as I think it does need real change. So, how are you? How do you think about that?
0: First, I definitely don't think the aid system is unmitigated bad. In MSF and other organisations, we treat patients, we save lives, we do. And if I thought it was unmitigated bad and irreparable, I wouldn't have been working in it while right. making statements about the, the, the needs to change. Um, however, um, the. The colonialist system hasn't always been thought of as unmitigated bad. And in its time, it wasn't seen as nearly bad by most people. And that's not only people who are perpetrating it, it is people on the receiving end. And, and, mm-hmm. and that is very well described. And in my description, it's not academic, is, is a, an image from George Orwell's Burmese days where the protagonist talks to the Indian doctor whose only purpose is to access the European club and be separated up towards the white people and away from the Burmese people. That image is almost identical to the expat house in most NGOs. Hmm. That is exclusive to the expats, that uh, you know there is still a strata inside it and it's off uh, limit to most of the national staff. But... Um, Again, I was recently reading um, Discourse on Colonialism by Aimé César, and and he explicitly said, we're not aiming to overthrow the culture and thought of Europe. We're aiming to overthrow the tyranny of Europe. And that is um, not dissimilar. No one is talking about Mm. uh, throwing away a history of humanitarianism that has done well and saved millions. Uh, No one wants to keep its Mm. defects. The problem we face today is a bit stuck in what is considered an unchanging scriptural description of how humanitarianism needs to be done that hasn't been examined in a long time. And many people will talk today about the humanitarian principles in the exact same terms that Piquet used in 79 to to explain Mm. them. And it hasn't been reformed. And that is absolutely important. Um, is it unmitigated bad? Absolutely not. Is it far away from uh, a perfect good by a long shot? Yes.
1: But I think the question then becomes: Would there be much left after it was decolonized? And um, there was a, a piece recently in the in the Lancet arguing, basically, that if you decolonized global health, there wouldn't be much left of it. We similarly did a survey in an event we held just after George Floyd's murder, and we asked hundreds of participants, was international aid inherently problematic? And almost a third of them said, yes, it could never be divorced from its colonial roots. Um, Surprisingly, almost half said no, that it could be reimagined in a way that isn't toxic. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. How much is left once you've decolonized? I think there are
0: two levels to this, a level that is important and pragmatic and immediate. I cannot take responsibility morally or or in any way for a call to dismantle the health system immediately, the global health or the humanitarian system immediately. And that is Mm. very clear. None of us has the moral grounds to say whoever dies dies from the disruption of services. Whoever loses their job, loses their job as long as we achieve the greater goal while I sit here in Geneva and talk on behalf of people. Mm. Uh, That is not the point. And I think anyone who advocates for you know, the immediate dismantle of the system is, is not thinking of the consequences wisely. Mm. Uh, however, what would stay? Would st- people still have solidarity and empathy and aim to help each other? Probably yes. It has existed before on Dunant and will probably exist after the uh, humanitarian sector. Will it be the same? Probably not. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Uh, the difference here is not where to, is we're not talking about the power holders reforming the power. We're not talking about the cliches of our job is to work ourselves out of a job. The privileged statement that is often repeated by development and, uh, and humanitarian workers uh, is that the, the aim is to provide um, or to seize um, the control of power and allow people to imagine Mm. a mutual aid and a solidarity, a humanitarian system that serves their needs, that is affected by their desires, and that is um, capable of continuing uh, without the oversight from donors and uh, uh, and, uh, uh, managers. Will that happen overnight, even in the best-case scenarios? Probably not, and it shouldn't necessarily be the case. Uh, but uh, the absolute resistance, the almost dogmatic resistance to any change in the humanitarian sector as a challenge to its core values, is also a as an extreme position as the dismantling of the aid system altogether.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I grapple with how that change happens, or what's the what's the pathway to that change. I could see some of the initial steps, and I think that things like diversifying uh management teams diversifying boards of directors bringing in different perspectives is a really important part of that and i can sort of see a possible end point which which maybe looks like what we've seen in global natural disaster response where if you go back 20 or 30 years uh, most big western donors were financing large disaster responses and most of that aid was being delivered through the kind of traditional western ngos today Many, not all but many countries have built up really strong natural disaster management capacity and you see much much less of a role for the international system in that countries are running their own responses um, There's also a lot less international money going into it because it's you know it's less necessary uh, countries can can cover it themselves so you know that's a possible kind of end end phase for uh, for humanitarian response but what I struggle with is that is that middle section kind of how do you go, from the one to the other. So just just to talk
0: about the end a little bit. You you said uh, that uh, uh, um, the call to defund police was uh, uh, an uh, overstating the policy content. Well, it depends on what timeline are you looking at. In the end of the day, um, well, I hope many people don't see the police as a fundamental part of society uh, that needs to exist forever. It is a stopgap in the best case and an oppressive force in the worst. And um, that to, to say that a society without police would be better off under appropriate circumstances is not a bad thing to say. Does that mean should we should abolish police to, tomorrow? Probably not. But um, there is a wide space between immediate radical solutions and considered radical solutions. And that needs to be distinguished because most of the opposing views benefit from illustrating, as in the US, calls like that as crazy leftist stuff that are inapplicable. And it doesn't need to be. One of the, you know, Chomsky is You could disagree with him on plenty of stuff. And I disagree with him on on plenty of stuff. (laughs) But he said very clearly, he's one of the uh, uh, few remaining significant anarchist thinkers. And he has said openly, I do not want governments to abolish tomorrow. I want to be able to practice a, a life that leads there and be able to act on my principles as the system changes. And I don't see that as entirely different. Uh, Representation is important as long as we acknowledge and understand that representation tokenism isn't going to be a solution. It is likely to move the clock, but it's not likely to be a solution on on in itself because there will be a selection of people who sound and look and talk and behave just like the people they are replacing except the skin color or or the passport color, and and that isn't a solution. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the failures of the system, there needs to be an acknowledgement of of a a possible different shape in the future, and then find solutions that are context specific, that apply to organizations, that exclude the worst abuses immediately and work the rest gradually with appropriate participation. It's not enough to have different people in the management team if the management team is still the single decision maker in an organization. There needs to be a democratization of humanitarian aid, and there needs to be a democratization at all levels. Anecdotes of sitting with elderly in in a village square, and and I am guilty of that as anyone else. Mm. And and not only do we end up... uh, condescending to the people we talk to by hearing them as informants and never as sources of knowledge. But we also participate to the local uh, power imbalances and enforce them uh, by only listening to people who are stamped with approval. We still have books that say talk to community leaders and religious leaders who are usually men, old and Mm -hmm. part of the uh, uh, elite. Absolutely, in their own community. It's rare that you hear people going and listening to women or children or people who are poorer or disabled people or so on, uh, as a matter of norm, as a matter of systematic approach. So it's not only that we practice our privilege over them, we enforce their privilege, and that in itself is a very colonial uh, Mm. activity because it has been practiced in almost every uh, colonial context. So... There's plenty to be changed, and there are things that are obvious. What I do not think is appropriate is to say we will change our recruitment process to make it more possible to pick a few more people from the South, and then we'll be fine. This mm-hmm. is a step towards a vision. The vision is not yet clear, and that's probably the first step we have to go to.
1: So, what does that look like tangibly? I mean, you're working in an organization that has had a very public struggle with racism. And um, a number of of, uh, recent articles that we have published have shown what, on a very granular level, that kind of institutional racism looks like. Um, What does it look like to try to change that from within an organization like that? Where have you started in your own journey?
0: I think it's important to talk about uh, uh, this, absolutely. But it's also important to talk about how MSF ended up where it is. Part of why you got the information you got is that because we still have um a a culture of dissent. It is still possible to have a controversial argument in MSF. So I say that partially to to credit my organization with, with what when credit is due, but also to say that those you do not hear from aren't immune from the problem. There are likely to be a, a positions where that problem cannot be raised. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing is, uh, of course, there are a wide range of opinions. Uh, Talking about white supremacy or structural racism and about colonialism, as it does everywhere, puts many people at at, uh, a level of discomfort that prevents the conversation from going on. Because when you Mm -hmm. say structural racism, many people hear you are racist, which is not the case At least not the case as a generalization and not the intention. The change has been happening very slowly and it hasn't touched in the humanitarian sector and in MSF yet on the two major issues that I think need to be um, addressed. One of them is, is the structural issue that the architecture of organizations, still MSF and most other humanitarian agencies, most donors, exist in the West, exist on Western terms, and are see the world from a Western point of view, mm. uh, w- which is quite hegemonic and quite oppressive, even though many of the recipients, c- governments and communities, uh, load and accept the, the structure because there's no alternative and because that's the narrative that's available. Uh, so the structure needs to be different, we we cannot be at this day and age and still believe that a bunch of people sitting in places like Geneva are are the best ones by default, whoever they are, of taking decisions that allocate billions of dollars towards life and death. And this is not only choices within an operation, within a country, it is the choice between countries and between operations. It is massive power that no people should have by default. The second one is in principle, humanitarianism has served a huge purpose and continues to do so. But just like any belief system where the lines between what is constant and what is not um, become too blurry and people start thinking that everything about us is a value that is unchangeable. it leads to stagnation and we have to revisit our values. Now, you know, you hear a lot of arguments about whether neutrality should be a fundamental principle of humanitarianism or not. Um, I would argue we should revisit whether humanity as it's described is a fundamental principle of humanitarianism because humanity Mm -hmm. implies that is the prerogative of the giver to give. It doesn't give any agency or autonomy to the receiver. And that is Mm -hmm. a result. You do 150 years of that, and that's the result. Uh, We need to talk about who chooses to direct aid at what criteria. It cannot be the gut feeling of people who's done it before. Um, It cannot be their entire prerogative unquestioned. Um, And that applies to humanitarianism. That applies to global health. That applies to philanthropies and and, uh, foundations that now determine... uh, (laughs) A large chunk of the pie. No one deserves to have that much power over people's lives and go unquestioned except arguing that they have the best intention.
2: I think in a way, what we have in the system is a mix of a kind of set of colonial power structure habits with a, almost a command economy or a, supply, a kind of a supply-driven economic model in terms of how aid is provided. So we're not driven by the demand signal from the people that are served, but rather by the supply preferences of the people providing. Um, And those two really reinforce each other. And and I don't see the path yet to what it looks like once we begin to break some of those things down. But I think we do also need to begin putting in place some changes that begin to do that without knowing fully where that's going to lead us. I think, and I think that's okay. I think as we diversify the voices that we're hearing as we shift more influence over aid priorities, you know, as you say, these are, you know, huge weighty decisions that are being assigned to people in far off capitals. And, and certainly I felt that when I was managing a part of the U.S. Uh, the US assistance budget, every allocation we made came with trade-offs um, that we were making on the basis of imperfect information. And so I think we, you know, we do as a system also owe it to those that we're trying to serve to hear their voices in that process in a way that is less filtered than we're used to doing. But I don't know exactly where that will take us in the end.
1: But Tamem, you've got this new initiative that you're launching, which does try to create a roadmap of sorts for how you go about decolonizing global health. So what are the components of that?
0: So calling it an initiative is is a big compliment,
1: and it still (laughs) isn't
0: yet. (laughs) There are ideas whose time has come. This is a, a, a result of a discussion before a panel in Geneva Health uh, um, Forum uh, where the host of the panel, uh, 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 who is an, an, a professor in London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, a British-Pakistani um, professor called Michelle Khan, and myself had a long discussion, and we found that we agree on many things, and we've helped our, each other clarify it. And then we thought, well, you know what, let's write a few things about it. And then we thought, well, it shouldn't be two people. Let's see if we can get a few people on board. So I tweeted about it. A single tweet doesn't explain anything. And before I knew it, there were 60 or 70 people uh, who have like came and said, count me in. And it's interesting, because very rarely do you get people committing to something that still hasn't have hasn't gotten a description. I got approached from a couple of people in universities in the north and the south saying, let's collaborate. Um, and, and neither of us has credentials in, that, in the sense that, you know, it's not us as persons. It's not the, uh, the, the description that is absolutely visionary. It is the fact that this is the moment for something like this to take place. And wherever it goes, it is important to hear the voices, to start building ideas. And once when you ask me about, you know, um, Jeremy, what do, what do I think should be done? I don't know. I, I really mm. don't, and I'm you know coming from Syria and having been born and lived all my life under, under a dictatorship i'm I'm definitely not a fan of prophets and leaders, and I don't mm-hmm. think anyone has um you know what it takes to do that single handedly draw a vision for humanity, and all of those who tried ended up more likely being Terence later than 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 uh, emancipators. I think people will figure it out. Once we start uh, collectively uh, taking out the barriers towards it, how would decolonized society look like? It looks different Mm -hmm. in Indonesia and in in Iraq. It looks different in Congo and in in wherever you go. And so should the global health and the humanitarian world. It's not a single space. It's not homogenous. It's not filled with people who think exactly the same just because they aren't Europeans. And they have to have that chance to give a voice. There are some people who will theorize and they will make as many mistakes as they, they make correct statements. And, and then increased representation, uh, dissolution of power. And, and I'm going to uh, you know, lovingly tell you, uh, you said we should hear more from people Uh, Mm. uh, unfiltered opinions and I think that statement is in itself problematic because it retains Mm. the decision in the end of the day in your hand you hear Mm. if you're nice enough you listen and adjust but you do not Mm. give any part of the power and that Mm. is also a problematic position I know it's a big step forward but we have to acknowledge when it's still not you know enough
2: yeah and I think you know, I look at that as a very intentional, tra- intentionally transitional step, right? I think the, in the long run, as I said, I think where we want to get to is this place where for the most part, this is unnecessary, where this looks more like what we do with disaster response, where it, it is run and owned by the people who are currently the foreign aid recipients.
1: And I, w- I was really struck a few episodes ago um, by a, an exchange we had in which uh, Muthoni Wanyeki, a Kenyan activist was saying you know i don't really feel like i have a well-formed vision for how this kind of local solidarity model comes to be and and then uh, paul curian responded to her by saying well why should you why should you be expected to have a vision ready on a plate you know um and so perhaps there is an unfair expectation that those who are fighting for um emancipation if you want to use that word have to have this perfectly clear vision before anyone can take them seriously and that wasn't the case for most of the humanitarian
0: organizations themselves as they were created, right? I don't think know had a, you know, went out of Solferino having a roadmap map for the next 100 years of the Red Cross's life. Uh, neither did those who created MSF, nor did those who created uh, many of the successful or unfailed attempts at providing aid, both health aid, but also humanitarian aid. So it's, it is unfair. It is unfair to expect people to do it um Within the system, it is you know within the, the confines of the system as it is now. When they are complaining about the system itself, and it is unfair to expect um, a replication of the model of hierarchy and, and domination for us to be taken seriously. Well, us, whoever is part of this, to be taken seriously. Uh, but just to state, part of the problem now is that it is risky to do so. Hmm. Not every place is a safe environment and not everybody is going to speak out. And, and that is important to consider because it's, it's not the job of people of color or people from the South or people who are marginalized in any system, health or humanitarian, to overthrow the, the four centuries of colonialism and, it's, and, and post-colonialism on their own so they can have a dignified career or life or, or ability to influence. This is something that has to be done more widely. And there are very well uh, existing um, uh, uh, and and emerging alliances with people who belong to countries of the north. And that is a collective responsibility that all of us have to be part of. And it's it's not an animosity by definition where every person of color in a humanitarian organization is against every person who's uh, every white person. That is an oversimplification. That is um, not dissimilar to what, again, the white, the, the right wing in the U.S. uses against Black Lives Matter. It's not a hatred movement. It's an inclusion movement. And that should be understood. And just like there, there will be people of all parts and walks of life in, in the humanitarian sector, hopefully, who will uh, be part of this, with different capacities, with different visions, with different ways of doing it. What is important, you know, of of things I've read, there is a sentence that never leaves me, and, and although I, I wouldn't claim that I understand what, what the guy was saying entirely, but Paulo Freire talks about education, about pedagogy, and he talks about dealing with people not as objects to be acted on, but as subjects who act themselves, and I think that concept of sovereignty and autonomy, both of people we serve, but also people who work with us, is not always obvious and it's not always top- taken seriously. And that might be a huge change to seek, at least in the beginning.
1: So, at the risk of asking you then to present a very clearly formed vision, if you had one idea that wasn't weighed down by the constraints of politics and, and reality that would address all of these issues we've just discussed. Um, where you can just dream as as widely and wildly as you see fit. It, does anything come to your mind? Shift it on, on its head.
0: There's no reason or purpose uh, for the massive concentration um, in in Europe for the leadership of humanitarianism. I'm not going to pretend that that sending all the headquarters to Africa is going to automatically solve the problem or to the global south. But... Having an absolutely hierarchical system where, in all humanitarian, aid, where the bosses sit in a Western capital and the you know, labor sits in the South, is unfeasible. There are ways where you can have um, more representation. In Germany, since the early 60s, there's an obligation that each company publicly traded uh, with more than two and a half thousand laborers workers has to have 50% of the board members from the unions. That is a feasible, immediate action that you can decide overnight. Have people unionize and be part of the decision in their organizations, from biggest decision to the accountability of their managers. Have country offices, rather than be reporting to the middle manager that reports to their boss, have them be federated and have a part, you know, a, a democratic representative system Whereby they have mm. as much voice as the capitals have, yeah. we can find solutions for the technical advice, for the medical advice, or for you know anything that is quite specific. That is out, but the representation and the choices of allocating resources and choosing who lives and who dies and who does it at what level of authority do not
1: need to be hierarchical. Tamam, thank you so much for being part of this conversation and helping stimulate some of the thoughts that will go into whatever that vision turns out to be.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Ivan Jeremy, for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Such a pleasure. Thanks, Taman. And if you have thoughts on how to decolonize aid or whether we should, tweet your comments or questions to us via at CGDev and at New Humanitarian with the hashtag Rethinking Humanitarianism or send in a voice recording to podcast at newhumanitarian.org.
1: And if you're a regular listener, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review of the podcast to help others discover it. And as always, to learn more about the topics we tackle on the podcast, head to thenewhumanitarian.org or cgdev.org. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast. See you again soon.